Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. special guest uh, who will be in the pulpit this morning uh, to share the Word of God with you, and uh, his name is Nate Perkins. Uh, even though he's from Santa Clarita, you, you might, some of you might actually think his face is familiar, and uh, uh, and there's a reason for that. Uh, Nate is currently the pastor at Covenant Baptist Church in Santa Clarita. He's been the pastor there for the last four years. He is also a husband to his wife, Deb. They've been married 16 years, and they have nine children. And that's not a typo, it's nine children. So praise the Lord for that. <laughs> um, and in addition to that, uh, to his full-time job as a dad and a husband and as a pastor, uh, he's also a captain with the uh, Kern County Fire Department, and he's uh, served there for 19 years. A number of those, Nate served right across the street here at this fire department. So he's actually very familiar with this church. He actually remembers Tom, um, the pastor that was before me. So, uh, so that's why some of you might actually recognize his face. But needless to say... Uh, Nate is a very busy man, but he made time to, to be here with us this morning. And so uh, would you join me in welcoming him to the pulpit, uh, Pastor Nate Perkins. Get rid of that. I need that. Thank you, Sherman. Um, yeah, as uh, uh, Pastor Sherman said, it... Uh, it is nice to be back in Boron. It was always a, a joy to come to work. It was a long joy, um, <laughs> as many of you know that maybe commute, but uh, it was a joy to come here and uh, have a little respite from the busy uh, life of a, of a larger town um, and uh, get to know the community. Uh, spent uh, many a 4th of July out here and, and other holidays just as the schedule works out. And so it is nice to be back I, I Facebook, you know, they, it produces those memories. And I think it was 10 years ago, um, I think is what it said was we had Thanksgiving right over here at the station. And so there's uh, a lot of good memories always, uh, felt well received by the community and loved as a public servant in that way. And now to be here in, in this uh, different capacity is, um, is different, uh, but it's good to be with you this morning. And uh, I do greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I bring greetings from Santa Clarita Covenant Baptist Church. Uh, they're praying for you this morning. And uh, I met uh, your pastor not too long ago at a um, at a uh, at a at a class in Bakersfield, and we became uh, fast friends as we talked about boron, uh, I think, and shooting and hunting, and so uh, it was good to get to know him. And I'm glad he invited me up here this morning. Well, down in Santa Clarita, we've been uh, going through the Book of Matthew for quite some time, and um, We've found ourselves in the last week of Christ's life and actually uh, in the last hours of Christ's life in Matthew 26. And just hours before our passage this morning that I'm going to be preaching from, we found Christ in the upper room with his disciples where he shared and instituted the Supper of the Lord. 
It was also there that he revealed uh, to his disciples that one would portray him. One would uh, portray him uh, specifically. Uh, and it would be uh, by the hand of Judas, though we found the disciples kind of confused. Is it I, Lord? Is it I? And then John's gospel records for us that it was in that upper room that Christ washed his disciples' feet as well as prayed uh, for his high priestly prayer, where we know that he prays for his apostles or his disciples and those that would come to know him through them. So he prays for the whole church. And following that time, they moved to the Mount of Olives, where Christ foretold of the falling away of the disciples. And it was there that Peter made his bold proclamation that though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And even after Christ tells of Peter's denial, Peter sinfully asserts, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Uh, We find ourselves um, very much associated with Peter. I hope we do. I hope we don't look down upon Peter and think uh, that he... Uh, is not like us, for very much so he is like us. Many of us, uh, and myself included, have made bold proclamations for the Lord, proclaiming our undying love for him, that we would, we would suffer great persecution for him, and yet we'll find this morning that uh, the smallest tip of temptation can move us uh, to fall, and sometimes fall grievously. And so we're familiar with that scene in Gethsemane, where Christ anguished in his soul over bearing the wrath of God, and then his, and then, uh, we, his betrayal takes place. Judas identifies Christ with a brotherly salutation, and so Christ is arrested and led away. And it's in our passage, we're at the arrest and trials of Jesus. Jesus has prepared his disciples as best they could be prepared, and has prepared himself by his hours of prayer in the garden. And now he stands in Caiaphas's court, where during his trial, we find Peter watching from a distance. There's also another nearby, Judas, who uh, uh, from uh, inference is present also. If you have your Bibles, you can open them with me to Matthew chapter 26. I'm going to read for us uh, the whole of our passage this morning, beginning in Matthew 26, 69, reading through. Matthew 27, verse 10. The word of the Lord says, Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the sayings of Jesus. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. When the morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, 
he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed. And he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and brought and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, the place has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Let us go to the Lord uh, in prayer for aid this morning. Oh Lord, we thank you that uh, we have such a word as this this morning. We thank you that you have given us your word, that it would be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, Lord. I pray that as uh, the word is preached from this vessel of clay, that by your spirit it would be effective towards your purposes, that you would strengthen the weak, you would call back the wayward, Lord, maybe by a wonderful act of your spirit that you would enliven the dead. May we seek your help now and be blessed by the preaching of your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you're taking notes, you can put at the top of your page a tale of two sinners. That's, that's the title uh, of this sermon. Because we're going to look at Peter and Judas. And we're going to see that these two sinners uh, approach their sin in two different ways. We'll look at Peter under the heading of repentance. And then as we look at Judas, we're going to see that he doesn't fall under the category of repentance. He falls under the category of regret. And so my goal this morning is to draw some encouragement from this comparison. And we're going to see that come hopefully to a conclusion under this idea of humility, mercy, and hope. But before we compare Peter and Judas, Matthew does something for us prior to this because he does something in comparing uh, Jesus's trial and Peter's denial. So there's an emphasis in Matthew that it's not just Peter and Judas that it's compared, but also Peter and Christ. And it would save us from forgetting that Peter would have succumbed to the crashing waves of temptation to the crashing waves of Satan's desire to have and sift Peter like wheat, but for the saving grasp of Christ upon him. And Matthew places the trials of Jesus and Peter side by side, and also the responses of the failures of both Peter and Judas, so that we would not focus on Peter, but upon the object of Peter's repentance. So if we first look at the contrast between Peter and Christ, we can draw a dramatic contrast between them. Really, between night and day, between light and darkness. Peter is rightly accused of being Jesus' disciple. Jesus is falsely accused of sedition and blasphemy. Peter is questioned by the priest's servants. 
And Jesus is questioned by the high priests. Both men take oaths, swearing that they tell the truth. But it is Peter who cowers before his questioner and denies everything. Indeed, he denies that he even knows Jesus. While Jesus stands before his questioners, denying nothing. It's Peter who swore, I do not know the man in order to save his own skin. But it is because Jesus stood firm that he offered his life for Peter. It's in this comparison we see what sin had undone, what the fall had cursed in the nature of Peter. Christ had put back together in his very life. And in the redemption won for us in Christ, we should not focus, not, we should not just focus on the sacrifice of Christ. Although it is of great importance to have our sin expiated by the death of Christ. We talk about Christ as our propitiation, he's our substitute. We sang wonderful songs about uh, the death of Christ as, as a sacrifice for us. But we also need someone who undoes the effects of of sin, the corruption within. We need one who is incorruptible, one who perfectly completes his covenant for us so that uh, we are made not only to stand or that we stand not only forgiven, but we stand before God also righteous. We can have our sins forgiven and our, and our slates wiped clean. If, if it was a bank account, you had uh, an unbearable debt in your sin. Also in your condemnation in Adam, you find yourself, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 2, uh, dead in your trespasses and sins, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so we put our faith in Christ as the perfect substitute in his life, that he is the spotless lamb slain before the foundation of the world, given to remove that debt. Yet there is also a requirement of righteousness to stand before God, before a holy and righteous God. So we look at Christ's life and we see what he, what in this comparison between Peter and Christ, we see Christ giving Peter everything he doesn't have in his, in Christ. uh coming through his trial, spotless, coming through his trial, though condemned, he's condemned uh, unrighteously. And Peter coming through, though he lives through this trial, we find Peter fallen short. And so this standing before God, righteous before God is known as justification, And it's one of the twin benefits of being united with Christ. If you've put your faith in Christ as your Savior, the twin benefits of being united with Christ is justification and the other being sanctification. And that is where our next comparison lies, within the life of sanctification in a believer, whereby the Spirit of God works the righteousness of Christ in and through us. And a part of this life is repentance. So Peter's repentance will be one uh, of a result of a fruit of his union with Christ so that Peter doesn't come by his repentance under his own strength. Peter comes by his repentance because it is Christ who holds him fast. 
And so if we look at Peter's denial, we begin in verse 69 of Matthew 26. And uh, I have uh, these next two verses, 69 and 70, labeled made scared. M-A-I-D, though, because he's approached by a young servant girl. And we remember that Peter had drew his sword to protect Christ in the garden. He cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant, and Christ restores the ear to him. Christ tells Peter to put his sword down. But Peter, uh, displaying great courage, right? He, he's, a, he's understood to be an older disciple, which is why they, they assume he was found in more leadership role. And so for him to draw his sword was, was with great courage, uh, with great strength. He tries to slay the servant in protecting Christ. And yet, where we have Peter this morning, or in our passage this morning, he cowers at the questioning of a young slave girl. John tells us that her question was in the negative, that she was expecting the answer to be no. So she, she gave Peter... Essentially, she gave Peter the easiest way out. She says, uh, she says, are you not with Christ? He says, she says in verse 69, you also were with Jesus, the Galilean. It's not as clear in Matthew's gospel, but in John's gospel, that the begging question or the leading question is, you're not one of Jesus's disciples, are you? You're not with Jesus, are you? You can see in the in that in that form, the expectation is that you you can go. Well, no, I'm I'm not with as one of Jesus's disciples. And we find Peter quickly obliging her, and he says, "I do not know what you mean." And it's an interesting answer that Peter gives to this young servant girl because it's an indirect lie, right? He doesn't say, "I'm not one of Jesus's disciples" directly. But he doesn't also say that he is. He says, I, I, I'm not, I don't know what you mean. He plays ignorant. And in playing ignorant, he's deceitful. He intends to sidestep the question. And yet it is a denial nonetheless. He knew what the slave girl was asking. He knew that she was associating him with Jesus. And his answer to this young slave girl whom could wield really no physical power over him though maybe he's afraid of an alarm or a verbal alarm that she would she would bring upon him he says i do not know what you mean well in verses 71 and 72 we have made scared the sequel because peter now is moving back towards the entrance and he's thinking that the exit or the entrance is a better suited place to blend in. But here again, he is questioned by a young slave girl who now gets others' attention by accusing Peter of his association with Jesus. It appears that the second lie was easier than the first lie because now he adds an oath and a denial of knowledge. And it's here that we see the deceitfulness of the flesh in that first denial. Peter had assumed that just a little deceit here will get me out of this. Just a little sin, it'll be okay. It'll be the last time I do it. I'll get out of this situation. I'll go back in towards the entrance. I'll get myself out of this sticky situation. 
And yet sin had deceived him. Sin had offered him escape. Sin had offered him something that sin cannot offer, which was salvation, right? Sin, sin, had, sin had deceived him in thinking, I can save myself if I just defer here, if I just sin a little. Because Peter didn't expect his first lie to lead to another. I think we've all found ourselves in that situation in our in our life, in our Christian life, we, we, we find that we don't plan the fifth consecutive sin or stumble in our life. But it, if we were to follow it back, we'd find it, it, it had root and cause in some ways of a singular act whereby we didn't think that we would fall. Peter had, had failed Christ in that he didn't watch and pray in the garden. You know, as much as that was for Christ, as much as Christ was asking the disciples to watch and pray for him, for he was going on to pray to the Father, it was also going to be a benefit to them that they would watch and pray upon them, pray uh, looking out for their own selves. And so now many close in on them in verses 70, in him on 70, 73 and 74. Because now his accent is giving him away. And in John's gospel, he records that a relative of Malchus, the servant of the high priest, thinks he recognizes Peter from the garden. So the scene is these people are all starting to put this together. We have this, this, this person here. He, he looks familiar. Now he sounds like he's not from there. He's from a distinct area of Galilee, of Nazareth. And that's where Jesus was from. And I think I saw you in the garden. Were you not there with him in the garden? Were you not there at the moment of his arrest? And now where that oath, where Peter, Peter doubled down, doubles down on his denial with an oath, where that oath did not satisfy, he adds now a curse upon himself. How slippery that path of sin is where one small stumble is now leading to a grievous sin where now peter is going to call down a curse upon god upon him for god to condemn him if he is not telling the truth may god curse me and condemn me if what i say is false is what peter is essentially saying and Peter doesn't just simply deny that he's a disciple. He doesn't just say that, no, I'm not one of them. I wish you would stop asking me. But he, he increases his sin in this calling down a curse or in cursing. And not only does he say, I, I'm not one of his disciples. He claims that he does not even know who Jesus is. And then the rooster crows. And Luke's gospel tells us that he sees Christ, or better still, Christ sees him. And here is Peter's moment. Peter's moment had arrived there in verse 75, where he remembers the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Peter's moment had arrived, though it was through an unexpected way. He had thought that he would need to be brave in physical battle. 
Peter thought his moment to shine was in the garden. When he drew his sword, he's like, this is it. This is when I'm going to show Christ that I, I will never deny him. This is where I'm going to show Christ I would give my life for him. In this brave physical contact or conflict. Maybe that he would be required to act as a younger man with brawn and strength. And so he was ready to do this and he draws his sword. But that wasn't Peter's moment. This was Peter's moment. It was of faithfulness that was going to be his test. It would be before a young and insignificant girl that he would be tested and, and actually found wanting. It would be for men of some position that he would actually curse himself and deny that he even knows Christ. See, Peter had not an eye for the fight that was upon him. As I said, he did not watch and pray as Christ told him, as told him and the other disciples to do in the garden. And now all this is coming flashing before Peter's eyes in a moment with the Lord before him. With the Lord before him as he's being led away to Pilate. He now sees clearly by the Spirit his pride. Where he thought he could withstand the charge of the soldiers and the arrest of Jesus. He could not even stand the questioning of a young servant girl. And so he goes out and he weeps bitterly. It was the spirit that had pierced his heart and he had repented. This is the last time we actually read of Peter's name in Matthew. The last time we read of Peter in Matthew is him going out and weeping bitterly. So how do we know that Peter repented? How can we call this going and weeping bitterly repentance? Two, two things I think we can draw a conclusion from to know that this is repentance. is One, the object of his repentance and the outcome of Peter's repentance. The object is that he looks upon Christ. Here he, he looks at Christ, or better yet, Christ looks upon him. It's in Luke, Luke's gospel that he, he runs to the tomb and marvels. He's, he wants to see Christ again. His, the object of his re repentance is Christ. So he wants to see him again and he runs to the tomb in Luke's gospel. In John's gospel where he no longer professes faithfulness above all others, but just his own love of Christ. We know we call that Peter's restoration. Peter, do you love me? He says, Lord, you know that I love you. He does. He no longer says, Lord, you know I love you above all these others. Or I, I love you more than these others love you. He merely says, Lord, you know that I love you. The object of Peter's repentance was Christ. He desired to be with him again. He desired to see him again. The outcome also is telling because the outcome of Peter's repentance is obedience. Here in uh, Matthew's gospel in chapter 28 and verse 10, Christ tells the disciples to meet him in Galilee. And then in verse 16, we read that they obeyed. Peter goes to Galilee as Christ had said. He, he now uh, is showing the fruit of that, uh, he's showing the outcome of that repentance is, is that he obeys 
Christ's words. And after being restored in John 21, Christ says to Peter in verse 18, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And John provides commentary. He says, this is this he said to, sh- to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. And we know that uh, or we, we learn uh, by way of tradition that it was Peter who uh, desired in his time of persecution when, when he was sentenced to death to be crucified. And tradition has it that he was crucified upside down. He, he went to his death. He went where uh, others would carry him where he did not want to go, but he went obediently. Certainly between that moment and the moment we're talking about this morning, he still sinned. He still he still probably returned to the Lord in, in repentance. We, we find Peter, uh, or Paul, confronting Peter in the book of Acts of other sins. And so we don't hold Peter out to be um, uh, sinless after this, but we can see that, that Peter truly sought obedience to the Lord. And this obedience this is, is an outcome of his repentance. And Judas would not repent. Judas' response to sin was not repentance. And in this case, it cost him his very life, and ultimately it cost him his eternal state. In verses 3 and 4 of chapter 27, we find Judas bringing his money, the money that he had bartered with the chief priests and the elders to uh, betray Christ, these 30 pieces of silver. It says in the ESV, it says that he, he changed his mind. He sees that Jesus was condemned and he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver. This, this idea of, his, of a changed mind, it has a, a root liking to repentance. There's a change of mind in true repentance. But this is not the change of mind that Judas undertakes. The, even the 1599 Genevan Bible and the King James Version says he repented himself. The NASB says he felt remorse, which you can kind of see in, in reading these three different translations that there is some range in meaning in this word in the original language. And the NASB, I think, grasps it rightly. It says he felt remorse. Judas feels sorry and guilty about what he did, but he does not repent. His grief focuses on his act of betrayal. And we see where Judas seeks relief. He seeks relief in the temple, the priests, and the return of his blood money, but he does not take his grief to the only one who could satisfy it, the only one that could give him peace. He does not take his grief to the Lord. His feelings have changed about what he did for sure, but his heart has not. He says that he betrayed innocent blood, and so he throws the money down and departs and hangs himself. Judas knows that he has sinned. What's interesting about Judas's position is that he recognizes what he did was a sin against God's law. 
How do we know that? It's because of the phrase he uses that he betrayed innocent blood. He, Judas knows that he sinned against the law of God, specifically in Deuteronomy 27, verse 25. Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood. It's very interesting to think that Judas had a mind that he had sinned against the law of God. He was, he was cognizant that he had sinned and that he, now he was cursed by the law of God. He was condemned by the law but he does not then turn to Christ. He doesn't even go to the other disciples for relief. He goes to these chief priests and the elders. And instead of true repentance, Judas only displays great regret. He regretted his plan and his payment. He felt the guilt of the law upon him, but he does not know to look to the one who has fulfilled it. He looks to the law for relief where none would be found. You know, oftentimes we do that in our own sin. We find ourselves sinning. We rightly know we're, singing, we're sinning uh, and we're disobeying the Lord. And so what do we tell ourselves? Well, what I need to do is I need to pray more. I need to read more. I need to go to church more. I need to get myself right with God maybe even before I go back to church. You know, you're giving yourself a new law. You're going to the law there. You're not going to Christ. You're not saying what I need is the redeeming blood of a Savior who has cleansed me of this sin. We can do that in our own life. We can go to the law for relief. And what you'll find is after a time, you'll know that there is no relief under the law. There is the law had become for Judas his own judge, jury, and ultimately executioner. One commentator helpfully observes, he says, Judas believes he is under this curse. The priests will not help him. Therefore, another law applies. To remove such blood guilt, the guilty party must pay for his crime by his own death. Judas took his life in an anguished attempt to atone for his guilt. He's going to the law now. The law says a blood atonement, a blood atonement must be taken place for this curse, and so he takes his own life. The lesson is vital. Judas feels terrible, but because he does not take his sin to the Lord, he is forced to take it upon himself. And we know this feeling that Judas has because regret is the natural response of our old man. We know this biblically. Cain, when the Lord punishes him for the murder of his brother Abel, in response to the Lord cursing him, to God cursing him, he says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Notice Cain's emphasis. My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me Today, away from the ground and from your face, I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. If we were to put that maybe in modern language, I don't like it. I know what I did was wrong, but I don't like the consequences. And we know, we know that to be true experientially. If any of you uh, 
have been parents know that your children often are remorseful when they did wrong or when they do wrong. Moreover, uh, they're, they're more remorseful, though, over the consequence than the offense itself. I know uh, for my children, it may surprise you that with nine children, I have to discipline them at all, but, uh, or that I have anything other to do than just discipline children. Uh, but I can tell this idea of regret is born in them naturally is because usually they're very upset at the punishment. And they'd have little mind for the offense. They have little mind of what led to it. What they care is, is what, what the punishment is. I know this in my own life. I know this in myself, and we should know it in ourselves, whereby we moan in our sin's temporary consequences more than we mourn our unrighteousness before a holy God. It's interesting to look at our passage again as it continues and we see the response of these chief priests and elders who by no means are guiltless in this interaction with Judas because now they don't want to violate their own law, their, their Corbin law, the law whereby things were dedicated to the Lord and so put in the treasury of the temple. So they cannot bring this money into the temple that it be dedicated to God because it is a blood money. And yet they, they lack the insight to see whereby this money became polluted in the first place. And so they go out and they purchase a field that would be a perpetual memorial of that treason, which had formerly been little known. We know this, I think, in our lives as sinners, I know this in my life. There have been many sins that are, are mental, at least in my mind, mental landmarks of where I fell grievously. Whereby I don't ever want to remember them again, but they keep coming back to my mind. Here, Judas could never have anticipated that this one betrayal would now become a memorial field in Jerusalem or in this area whereby they would now bury foreigners. People that would uh, pilgrim to Jerusalem that were not Jewish descendant and they would die there now had a burial plot in Jerusalem, in the land of Israel. They were given a portion of the land, though they had no right to it. Matthew notes following the example of Christ or also said the Spirit of God consistently reveals and interprets Scripture according to the scope of Scripture, who is Christ. He takes from both Jeremiah and Zechariah there at the end of our passage when it says this was done to be filled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, that what was there quoted is, is kind of a, a, a combination between Jeremiah and Zechariah. How can Matthew do this? How does the Spirit do it? Because the scope of Scripture is Christ. So that these passages out of both Jeremiah and Zechariah become crystal clear in light of the arrival of Christ. And this was also to show that Christ's betrayal was decreed in detail beforehand. So Peter proclaims in Acts that all the inhabitants of Jerusalem came to know this field. So now this memorial moves from this monument of sin to now it, we will see that it moves from a monument of sin to a memorial 
of the grace of God. And we can think about this idea of repentance and regret, and I think we should take much encouragement this morning through these three headings of humility, mercy, and hope. First, under humility, we must understand repentance humbly. Calvin is helpful here. He says, here we see that there is no necessity for a severe contest or for many forces or implements of war to overpower a man. For any man who is not supported by the hand of God will instantly fall by a slight gale or the rustling of a falling leaf. Peter undoubtedly was not less courageous than any of us, and he had already given no ordinary proof of his valor, though it was exercised in a rash and improper manner. And yet he does not wait until he is dragged before the tribunal of the high priest or until his enemies attempt to put him to death by violence. But terrified by a woman's voice, immediately he denies his master. Brothers and sisters, we must not look upon Peter with disdain, but we must look upon Peter and pray to the Lord to uphold us in every temptation we face. We must watch and pray as Christ encouraged his disciples to do, humbly relying upon God in all circumstances. But we must also see that though there is a imperative to be humble, there is a, a great encouragement in the mercy given to Peter. Yes, there was mercy in Peter's denial. First, the mercy of God's restraining hand upon Peter's enemy, namely Satan. Remember that in Luke 22, Christ had said that Satan desired, desired to sift Peter like wheat, but, but Christ had prayed for him. Again, Calvin is helpful. He says, although then it was very base in him to fall three times, yet the Lord spared him by restraining the tongues of enemies from making additional attacks upon him. Calvin rightly sees that there was no reason to only be three accusers or three times that, Christ or that Peter denies Christ. For there was a whole host of people that could have piled upon Peter these accusations. And Peter, in his own strength, would have stood there and denied each one of them. Maybe even going to acts of, of hurting himself or cutting himself to show that he was telling the truth. Thus also it is every day necessary for the Lord to bridle Satan, lest he overwhelm us with innumerable temptations. For though he does not cease to employ many instruments in assailing us, were it not that the Lord, paying regard to our weakness, restrains the violence of Satan's rage, we would have to contend against a prodigious amount of temptation, uh, uh, an innumerable amount of temptations. In this respect, therefore, we ought to praise the mercy of the Lord, who does not permit our enemy to make advances against us, almost a hundredth part of what he would desire. Let us praise the Lord in his mercy that though we face temptations, we don't face as many as that which he restrains. So then we would also see that it is a mercy upon God that when we face temptation, it is, it is, the, it is we, as we are found in Christ, it is by the hand of a loving father who seeks to, to discipline and chastise his children. Also, the prophecy of Christ about the rooster crowing, which was for Peter, an instruction for repentance. In Luke 22, Christ tells us that, uh, Peter, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. 
You see, Peter fell away, but he didn't fall completely. He was, gra- he was held in the hand of Christ. The London Baptist Confession, you may be, some of you may be familiar with it, some of you may be not. It is, our, is the confession of our church, much like a statement of faith, but it has a historical background. And it says in chapter 15, and it has this passage out of Luke 22 in mind when it says, Whereas there is none that does good and does not sin, and the best of men may, through the power and deceitfulness of their corruption dwelling in them, with the prevaliancy of temptation, fall into great sins and provocations. Do we know that as sinners? Do we know that in our Christian life? Yes, we do. But God has, in the covenant of grace, mercifully provided that believers so sinning and falling be renewed through repentance unto salvation. There's a mercy of the Lord in that we have the words of the Lord as Peter did. He remembered all that Christ had said. We have the words of the Lord here. That is a mercy to us that we can go to the words of the Lord and find that it is uh, telling us of one who had been tempted himself and yet without sin so that we would put our hope in him. And by this example, we are taught that we ought to entertain confident hope through our repentance, though our repentance be lame, for God does not despise even weak repentance. If, if you can, you can turn with me to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1 uh, it has great encouragement. And many of us have, have read it before, and we've read it with the idea that it says that we need to love one another. If you don't obey my commandments, uh, then you, you don't love me. And we've always found ourselves looking at that, knowing that we don't love the Lord and his commandments as we should. And so we may question, do we even love the Lord? But listen to what John says here at the beginning of his letter in 1 John, beginning in verse 8. He says, if we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We see that Christ is our advocate and propitiation. Christ as our advocate says, this one is mine. Christ as our propitiation says, this one I have represented. My life is his life. My death is his death. My resurrection will be his resurrection. Remember, it was Christ who visually comes to Peter first in his lowest time of his life. Peter found his hope the minute he was at his lowest part in his life because it was Christ who comes to him. It was Christ who looks at Peter It was Christ whose face was still very likely to be covered in spit and bruised and cut because of the beating he had already received. 
And yet it would have been full of pardon and mercy. Eyes who had already stared down the evil one three times during his temptation has claimed Peter and represented his denial already. And where Peter failed, Christ was victorious. Where Peter sinfully and cursedly attempted to avoid arrest, Christ was willingly despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as Isaiah writes. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was, he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall proclaim his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Brothers and sisters, if we are represented there, by the piercings, by the crushings, by the chastisements, by the wounds, then we are his offspring. We are the offspring of Christ, held by Christ in all our fallings. So we look not to any other person. We look not to any other thing. We certainly don't formulate a law of ourselves we certainly don't look to the law of god to restore us we look to christ again i found very helpful words in in our confession at covenant baptist church it defines repentance as an evangelical grace whereby a person being by the holy spirit made sensible of the manifold evil of his sin does by faith in christ humble himself for it with godly sorrow, detestation of it, and self-abhorrency, praying for pardon and strength of grace with a purpose and endeavor by supplies of the Spirit to walk before God unto all well-pleasing in all things. All that to say is true repentance is a displeasure for sin, not guilt. Judas conceived disgust and horror not as to turn to God, but rather that being overwhelmed with despair, he might serve as an example of a man entirely shut out from the grace of God. True repentance arises out of fear and reverence for God and simultaneously produces disdain for sin and love and desire for righteousness. Our hope is truly in the righteous one, for he has purchased our very lives with his blood. Seen within the lens uh, this lens, Judas's 30 pieces of silver uh, that are a price for Christ's head is used to purchase a foreigner's resting place, a place where they had no inheritance, yet now they have the ability to be buried there in the land. That, that old, old writer, Augustine, he says, we read in Scripture that the salvation of the whole human race has been purchased by the Savior, Savior's blood. This field, then, is the whole world. The potter, who is the Lord of the soil, is he who has formed the clay, the vessels of our bodies. 
This potter's field then was purchased by Christ's blood and to strangers who without country or home wander over the whole world. Repose is provided by Christ's blood. These foreigners are more the more devout Christians who have renounced the world and have no possession in it, and so repose in Christ's blood. For the burial of Christ is nothing but the repose of a Christian. For as the apostle says, we are buried with him by baptism into death. We are in this life then as foreigners. There's much encouragement there by the pen of Augustine in considering that field, whereby we have no inheritance in the Lord. We've been given, made heirs with Christ. That our union with Christ would not just be our righteous standing before God and our justification, but our union with Christ would be the means by which we find ourselves living according to that righteousness in our sanctification. And the last paragraph of that chapter I've been reading of, of the confession says, Such is the provision which God has made through Christ in the covenant of grace for the preservation of believers unto salvation that although there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation, yet there is no sin so great that it shall bring damnation to them that repent, which makes the constant preaching of repentance ever necessary. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.